0: Hi, this is Billie Jean King. This is Marion Bartoli. I'm Mats Wilander. This is Mary
1: Carrillo. This is Pam Shriver. I'm Sandra Winka I'm Leighton Hewitt. This is Yannick Noah, and you're listening
0: to the tennis podcast. <laughs>
2: So Paula Badossa and Cameron Norrie are the champions of an Indian Wells tournament that has been held in October and that is very indicative of the wild ride that 2021 has been David and Matt are here alongside me you watched these finals at two very different times of day Matt and I Matt and I were there live while David was in a deep deep slumber and watched it all on catch-up this morning. Is that right, David?
3: Uh, I saw the first two sets of Badosa against Azarenka, basically because I completely got all my times wrong. Uh, I'd been hearing so many people talk about the Norrie final due to get underway at midnight that i completely forgotten that the women's final was going to be before that, which was a terrible error. Uh, and then you both alerted me to the fact that this is a good final, at 3-2 in the first set. And I'm like, what final? Oh, crikey, that final! Oh, and then I turned it on, and I mean, it. I think it's rare that you turn on a match like that when somebody says, "Oh, this is good," and and that it actually seems to kind of get better. And that's what happened in the uh, in the first set of that match. And then I got to one set all, and I just, I'm going to bed at nine thirty most nights at the moment moment and uh and I slept like a baby and then I woke up and watched the lot whilst trying to make the kids their breakfast and then my daughter ended up watching the 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 conclusion of Azarenka Badosa with me uh for the last three or four games and the tie break and everything and you know by the end of it she was a Paola Badosa fan simple as
2: I love sleep Matt, as as we all know very much, but I, I don't know what's happened to, to to David Law or David Law two as we now know him because I am not sure even sleep would have been enough of an incentive for me to to switch off that Bedoser Azarenka match. Well, at, at any stage really, but certainly not with it poised at uh, at a set apiece. So. Do- Offer the cap to you, David, and your and your new sleep habits. But
3: thank you. You've been working on that for 14 years, haven't you, Catherine? And now you've managed to get me to do it.
2: <laughs> I'm really proud you've of. Gone David. too far, David. You've yeah. gone too far. <laughs>
1: Not only are you sleeping, you're sleeping through great tennis matches. How are you doing this?
3: I'm sort of like Benjamin Button, aren't I? I'm kind of like my sleeping patterns going backwards.
2: I mean, great tennis matches is, is probably an understatement. I mean, th- this is absolutely a strong contender for match of the year, right?
3: Oh, yeah. And I know it's so hard when you see something that makes you feel like that did and to put it into any fair context against matches that happened a while ago and you can't quite remember how maybe they made you feel. But the, certainly the first and third sets of that match stack up against anything. Yeah, I, th- I think
1: it's... Definitely a contender. I I tweeted as much. I was so caught up in that match. I tweeted, this is a match of the year, isn't it? And most people seem to be agreeing with that. I then suddenly remembered that the US Open was basically two weeks of matches of the year. Um, and there were certainly lots of contenders in that tournament. But this was right there with them, I think. Certainly the fact it was a final, there was so much on the line. That always helps, I think. Um, but yeah, just it's sustained Mind-blowing quality. It's it's drama from start to finish. Um, It was sort of tug of war, both players bringing their best and responding to each other's best. Um, The fact the result was in the balance right until the very end. I really felt for all the all the writers having to file on deadline because I had absolutely no idea who was winning that match. Um, And I think most of all, I will remember the match for its intensity. I think that's a Azarenka trademark, isn't it? That she sort of built her career on that. That's kind of her mantra. She said after she beat Ostapenko in the semi final if you're going to beat me, you're going to have to beat me right to the very end. And you expect that from Azarenka. So when you face her, you have to match that intensity. You know, we've seen Serena do that so well over the years. And Badosa very much rose to that challenge, especially in the first set i think the first first three games took 20 minutes and that really just set the tone long rallies hard fought contested games and just carried on there was a slight dip from badosso at the start of the second set so impressive from azarenka that after dropping the first set in sort of crushing style really on the tiebreak she then kept her intensity up and there was no dips from her and then Badossa just rose again in, in the third set. It was it was an outstanding, outstanding match.
2: Yeah, talk about doing it the hard way. I mean, the two sets that Badossa won, she she did it in tie breaks and, and they were they were quite similar tie breaks, weren't they? Because Badossa just came out of the blocks and took do well in the opening set tiebreak, she took a full love lead, I think, and then and then got pegged back. It ended up being a bit closer. And I think in the Third set tiebreak, she took a three love lead certainly, um, <clears throat> and uh, it ended up getting uh, getting a little bit edgier as well. But you know, in in I think both of those tiebreak situations going into them, you'd back Azarenka, you'd back you'd back experience. I think I think most people would anyway. But um, but Dosa is. Gutsy, isn't she? She she took the risks in the tie breaks, and she made Azarenka look a bit bit gun shy. Really, she made Azarenka look. Well, she made she made her play defensive. She made her yeah look look like the shrinking violet on the court. I was so impressed with how Badossa took that match in the most pressured and tense of circumstances. And let's remember, completely uncharted territory. For Paola Bedos, it would have been entirely understandable if she she hadn't quite turned up for that match. You know that I mean, talk about a huge leap up for her in terms of achievement and experience and and all of those things. And she didn't just show up; she showed up and showed us something she's she's never showed us before. I don't think I was so so impressed with not only her tennis, but her fangs in that final. And let's not forget that Azarenka served for the match in the deciding set. Uh, she had 30 love in that service game, and, and those those two points at the start of it were won very quickly. It looked, I'm not going to say inevitable, but it looked, you know, the train had left the station, it was rolling, yeah. and Badosa somehow managed to put the brakes on it, and wow, it was impressive.
3: Yeah, I kind of felt when the match was going on that, that Badosa was the more explosive of the two in the exchanges. That And that's, despite the fact that Azarenka kept on bringing it, I didn't feel like she was not going for it. I just think that when the ball comes off the racket of Badosa there's, there's a real injection on it uh, and there's the spin and all the rest of it. She's kind of the full package from the baseline, I think. And uh, I think what, impressed me most about her was that she was having to find out about herself as the match was going along and uh, she played that incredible first set and you saw the difference in their experience the way Azarenka won the second set but also wasn't really there in that second she hadn't she kind of blown herself out in that first set whereas Azarenka's saying to her well yeah but champions do this Consistently, relentlessly, and that's what I'm going to do. Can you? And uh, and she couldn't in the second set, and it was, and then when they got into the third set, they, they were oh hello, Billie Jean. Uh, in the third set, they were straight back into toe to toe again. It was, it, it, but us was having to kind of ride the waves of the match in order to win it. And uh, but and I sort of felt all the way through. I kind of felt she would win, but then when it was. When Asmerinka had broken her serve and was serving for it, no, I agree. I mean, there's, I didn't see the break coming again from her, and uh, and I just think she she learnt about what it takes in the finals or at a Grand Slam. This wasn't a Grand Slam, but I think she will now be able to take this into future tournaments, and she now knows what it's like to live with somebody who has gone to depths of. Of pushing yourself, that only people like Azarenka have gone to in the in, in the game,
1: and Indian Wells has been a launchpad, hasn't it? in In recent years, the the twenty eighteen winner was Naomi Osaka. She went on to win the U.S. Open that year. Bianca Andreescu twenty nineteen did the same thing. Obviously, there's no U.S. Open for Paola Badosa to go on to win this year because of where Indian Wells has fallen. But
2: as did Dominic Team, of course.
1: Yes, absolutely. So there's there's certainly precedent there, and and I. I think Badosa has been she's been building to this result. She's had a really interesting season. She started it at about 70 in the world. She's now up I think to 16 into the top 8 in the race. Um and there've been some real high points and milestones. She won her first grand slam match in Australia this year. She beat Ash Barty in Charleston. She reached the semi-finals in Madrid in in that you know in front of that home crowd which was a really big deal. She reached the second week at both Roland Garros and Wimbledon over the summer, and yet there's also been quite a lot of adversity in this season, sort of physical and mental. She she began the year at 21 days hard quarantine in Melbourne,
2: and and got COVID, I believe, and and, and suffered quite badly from it as well.
1: She then had a a real heartbreaking loss at the French Open, nine seven in in the in the third to. Zidansek Um, she had to retire with heat stroke at the Olympics in, in the quarterfinals there, just just a couple of matches away from getting a medal. She's changed her coach, as we spoke about last week. You know, so all of this has been going on, and yet she's maintained a consistency and it has felt like she's been she's been building to this result. So yeah, I'm I'm so impressed. I think that trait you mentioned of her winning sets, tight sets, despite Azarenka playing well and coming back at her was something that she had all week, really. She did it against Krachikova, she did it against Kerber. She's so, so mentally tough. Um, I think from Azarenka's perspective, I didn't see that break back coming either when she was 30 love up serving for the title. I was reminded on, on Twitter by Matt Trollope that yes, Azarenka won Cincinnati last year but she didn't actually have to win that final because Naomi Osaka withdrew beforehand. It had actually been five years since Azarenka had served out a title. Uh, Miami 2016 was the last time she had to do that. And, And you do hear old, you know, sort of legends of the game talk about what changes as you get older and is it your nerve a little bit? And I think a lot of them do say that. And you know, perhaps just that was significant, Azarenka not having been in that position recently. Um, she did get tight. The double fault came. She did start missing. I think she lost eight of nine points in a row from that 30-love moment. So she did let it slip a little bit. But once it got to the tie break, it was all about how how brilliant Padossa was and, and how she rose to that challenge. And yeah, in- injected pace into her shots. It's It's really noticeable that, isn't it?
2: Yeah, I think Badossa might have been partially motivated by a desire not to be upstaged by her boyfriend's arms. <laughs> her boyfriend was, was very demonstrative courtside. Uh, apparently he's a model, never seen him before in my life. Rocked up wearing what I would describe as lounge-slash-pajama wear uh, or g- gym wear, gym wear it was what he was wearing, a flimsy vest. Um, and uh, he's clearly spent some time in the sun and in the gym, and uh, the camera was on him a lot, and there was a, there was a lot of arm flexing. And I reckon she thought, "No, this is not about my boyfriend's arms. <laughs> this is about me. I'm going to have to win the title to upstage those arms." <laughs> and and she did.
3: Well done, her. She sure sure did.
1: And she was wearing the. Nike kit that Emerita kanu won the US Open in. That is a successful yes. kit.
2: Mm. Maybe that's the key to success. Who knows? In terms of <sighs> the point about Indian Wells being a springboard is a really interesting one, isn't it? Because there is there is a lot of data and evidence and recent data and evidence to back that up. And this, this discussion will apply to Cam Nori as well. What we don't have is any data and evidence Uh, of what winning an Indian Wells title in October means for anyone. Does this title kind of take the place um, of titles like Wuhan and Beijing and Shanghai um, in our minds and in the narrative and Paris, where we think that's brilliant and it's very easy to fall into the trap of thinking, okay, well, that person's definitely going to be a contender in Australia and for next season then, and actually it turns out being the worst time of the year to to win a title. See Sabalenka in seasons past and Caroline Garcia as well. And there are plenty of other examples. I mean, I know the answer to this is we don't know because it's never happened before, but (laughs) would anybody care to speculate? Hands up, please. Yep. David has it. I've just realized hands up doesn't work uh, on a (laughs) podcast. David, (laughs) off you go. I
3: I just did as I was told. Um, but uh, I I think it is different. I, I think the the surface being slow, high bouncing. I they did not make it look like a slow court at all. Those two. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think. Uh, I mean, okay, Azarenka won a very one sided set, and uh, she hit uh, forty eight winners to forty four of Badossa, But like I say, I still stand by the fact that in those first those two sets that Badossa won, she was the more explosive player. That feels like a a very transferable game that she's got, and I, I know it's quicker in Australia, uh, but I think she has a really good game for for the Australian Open. Personally,
2: I'm not doubting the game at all. Just like I didn't, you know, same applied to Sabalenka and 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 Garcia and and all of that. I'm just saying. Is it a bad time of year to have don't to be playing so. your best tennis? Is, no, I, is don't, I, the I think there's, there's enough
3: of a gap from, from now. I think this is a, maybe a bit earlier in the year. I'm not exactly sure of the dates. Look, I may be completely wrong, but I I just think her game looks so solid in its foundations. And she seems mature as well because she's gone through a lot. She She's spoken a lot about the depression she suffered after her junior years and how... I think she's kind of really got to know herself in that period and and come out of it as a as a very solid character and and just I, I look it's only a, it's just a feeling I think that this is a player who we're just going to keep seeing in quarterfinals in second weeks of grand slams and and pushing I think she's she is in the mix as far as I'm concerned.
2: I agree with everything you've just said, David. I just feel like you've answered a slightly different question to the one I asked.
3: <laughs> well, I don't, think, I don't see any problems with the time of year for her. I don't.
1: I think it's interesting with the WTA finals around the corner. You know, That is an event you want to be heading into with good form and it's looking like she will now qualify. It, it, that isn't certain. Certainly if Ash Barty does play, then there's a lot still to play for in terms of qualification. If, if Ash Barty sits it out, we know she's back in Australia. Um, then I think Badossa is in and she's heading into that tournament with form. Um, again, the conditions there will be a factor. So we understand.
2: We don't know what kind of factor.
1: No, we just think it will there will be, be. A
2: fun factor. <laughs>
1: and they might help some and they might hinder some. Who knows whether it will help or hinder Badosa. Um But I think it doesn't, it doesn't feel like this has just come out of the blue and now this is, let's see if this is a launch pad for her. As I said, it feels like she's been building to this result and this is this is a step for her on her trajectory, I think pretty much right to the top of the game. I, I really have belief in Badosa. I've enjoyed watching her play this year and she seems to have the physical capability, she seems to have the game and she seems to have the the mental strength required to win big matches
2: mm, and i think i think obviously winning this title will will enhance all of that but i listening to her speech yesterday and both speeches were an absolute joy from azarenka and badosa but listening to badosa's speech i do think beating azarenka in this final will be particularly significant for her in terms of belief because she spoke so heartfeltly, not a word about <laughs> How much of an inspiration Azarenka was to her um, at a very critical—I mean, it must have made Azarenka feel a hundred years old—but but at a very critical time in in her development, sort of in her mid-teens, she said to her coach, "I want to play like her. I want to win titles like her." So, t- wow! To, to, I didn't even see that. That's, less I got than got ten years later, be playing like her and winning titles like her, but also doing it against her. I don't know. That is, that's gotta be something, something big, I think. So yeah, I, I, I totally agree. This isn't out of the blue. This is okay. It's a big step up, but it's, it's a continuation of the curve that she's mm. been on. And I, I do think she's here to stay. I just worry that it's the wrong time. Of the. It's such a frustrating time of the year to build momentum. Um, and you must have that feeling of God. I just want the season. Why can't the Australian Open be now? I don't want Christmas. I don't want to take a holiday. I want to carry on playing tennis. Um, but yeah, I could be wrong. And I hope, I hope, um, I hope she is able to continue it because she's she's good news. She's great to watch. Um, and hey, it's it's great to see Azarenka playing playing good tennis as well and giving and also a uh, a brilliant speech. Um. So that was the first final that we saw yesterday. I think the longest ever women's final uh, in Indian Wells. And it caused the men's final to be uh, slightly delayed coming onto court. But come onto court, they did. Cameron Norrie and Nicolas Basilashvili of Georgia. Um, and this was also a three-set final, but one with a very different feel about it, I think, Matt. Yeah. Or David. I should have done hands up again, shouldn't I? Who wants to go? <laughs> go on, David. You take well, it. Well,
3: I mean, the, the, the thing that struck me is that the difference between the two finals is in the women's final they both played well at the same time, and in the men's final they didn't. It really comes down to that. I thought, I mean, Norrie had a, a spurt for three-one, then he 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 watched as his opponent just played like out of his mind and won the first set in twenty-nine minutes from three-one down. And then went to break up in the second, and then completely went off the boil to an embarrassing level. I mean he was suddenly hitting forehands ten feet long, halfway up the net, missing the sort of tram lines you know he he couldn't- it's it's bizarre how you can go from being that good to that awful in in the space of a few shots, but then when you're hitting average speeds of your ground strokes 10 miles an hour faster than your opponent and 83 off one side and 85 miles an hour off the other side <laughs> you're not giving yourself much margin for error so he had his 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 moment, and then Norrie kind of took over with his relentlessness but it was it wasn't a great final but like like the first one was and um yeah just an amazing achievement from nori and uh yeah uh, wow can't believe what he's done really this year
1: yeah, it was a bit of a flat start, wasn't it? Because the the crowd was very sparse. You know, it was a brilliant crowd for the women's final, and then, understandably, lots of them want a break from the sun, I think, and then they left. And Norrie and Philly came out, and it was it was pretty empty to begin with. Um, and yeah, I completely agree with David. It, it wasn't a wasn't a classic match because they didn't play well at the same time. There was a moment of absolute brilliance from Cameron Norrie at 5-4 in the second set with Basilashvili serving the two points he played to start that game the first was a was a drop shot lob drop shot combination to win the point and then the second was a running backhand pass up the line and just two moments of inspiration then and, and from then on he was he was anyone in it really i mean I, th- I think Basilashvili only won one more game um I can't believe Cameron Nure has won Indian Wells. I mean, <laughs>
2: it's, it's bonkers, isn't it? It's yeah. to bo- It's a joke to, to borrow <laughs> a, a Tim Hemman ism
1: <laughs> Yeah. And, and I think there's, you know, there's obviously going to be sort of comparison with Raducanu winning the US Open, just, just purely on the point of their two unexpected... British tennis achievements that have taken place in the last six weeks. Um, But they're unexpected for different reasons. And I think those reasons sort of influence the way I feel about them. Because with Raducanu, the thing which made it so astounding that she won the US Open was her complete lack of experience, you know, with it being just her second Grand Slam tournament. So there was, you know, throughout that whole two weeks, there was nothing at all to tell us that she could win the US Open But other than the sort of history of no qualifier having done it, there was nothing that we knew about her telling us that she couldn't either. So we were sort of finding out with her and what her potential was and discovering all that at the same time she was. And that made it tremendously exciting and this kind of wild, unbelievable ride. And it was sort of really joyous. I think with Norrie, the difference is he is experienced. He is established. This is his fifth year on tour. And he's never done it at this level before so there was nothing telling us he could do it but there actually was something telling us that he couldn't do it you know we'd seen him improve absolutely we've seen him get better this year but he's always eventually run into Berrettini in the Queens final or Rude the other week in the final who just have a bit too much game for him or he hasn't always delivered his best in the finals so the fact he's overcome sort of all of that all of his own history just leaves me with this incredible feeling of respect and admiration for what he's done. He's he's turned himself into a tennis player achieving things that I I didn't think were possible for him. And I'm always wary of patronising him with words like maximiser and consistent and week in, week out and...
2: Un- un-sexy words, Matt. <laughs> and,
1: uh, those are the words which underpin his success, absolutely. And, and without all of that, he wouldn't be where he is. But he's also a very, very good tennis player. And I, I really tried to identify that this week and, and look at what it was. And I think especially against Schwarzman and against um, Dimitrov, those were two of the best matches I've seen in play. The, the forehand is loopy and spinny and the backhand is so flat and skids through the court. And I think that combination is really difficult for players to play against. Um, and of course, he's got this incredible sort of depth on his shots and he he, he neutralises opponents and he moves well. There are so many great aspects to his tennis as well, which, which I think really flourish
2: this week. I will um, compensate for your unsexy <laughs> compliments of Cameron Norrie with a one that will be definitely be accused of being hyperbolous and that is Nadal like. And I, I and I, I think Dimitrov in the semis and Basilashvili in the finals, those two opponents were the perfect contrasts really to highlight exactly what is so brilliant and special about Cameron Norrie because they're both flaky aren't they? I mean, Basilashvili showed up for portions of that final. And then as you described, David in vivid, in vivid color, went completely off the boil. And Cam Norrie was completely prepared for that. He knew that there was going to be at least a period of that game where he was blasted off the court by Basilashvili. You know, the difference in weight of shot uh, at moments was staggering, actually made Cameron Norrie look like he was, you know, playing badminton, while Basilashvili was, you know, just, I don't know, playing lunar tennis. And it was a bit like that in
3: the Queen's final, really, uh, I felt. And and this was, I I kind of felt this was Norrie stepping out of the imposter syndrome a little bit in that way.
2: Yeah, and and obviously the matchup against Dimitrov, Dimitrov, a really different one. But Dimitrov really played a terrible match in that semi-final, he did. Um, he, he really failed to, to, to sort of follow through on, on the wins he'd had up until that point, which were which were great wins, but it was a poor performance from him in the semi-final. And you just knew before that match that that was a risk, that Dimitrov wouldn't really show up. And you knew with Kamwar Norrie that, that there was no risk of that at all. He was going to show up. He might get outplayed if Dimitrov played his top level, but he was going to show up and do do what he does. And he was going to do it every single point of the match. I don't think there are many players, and I'm not saying he is the Nadal level of this because Nadal does this better than any other person in sport, I believe, but... It is Nadal like the way he plays every single point, as if everything that's gone before it simply didn't happen, and that is a, a, a staggering, staggering compliment. It is, it's as big a compliment as I can as I can pay someone. Really, it's it's incredible, and I know it leads to him being you know his 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 celebration when he won was was muted, wasn't it? He's so level headed and seemingly unflappable, that it's it's hard to get sort of great reaction from him, isn't it? But that was it was also Cameron Norrie. You know, and that's what that is that for me is what's played as big a part as anything else in getting him to this point. And I can't think of many players obviously there's Rafa in a stratosphere of his own, but I can't think of many other players that are that are able to do that the way he can.
1: And it's interesting you mentioned Nadal because I remember very clearly at the start of the year when Rafael Nadal played Cameron Norrie at the Australian Open and we weren't sure what sort of form Nadal was in. Do you remember there was a lot of talk about his back being injured and he'd, he'd won his first two matches. But he said before playing Norrie, I really need to step it up now in this third round because Norrie is a different calibre of opponent and it strikes me now that maybe kind of maybe Nadal did see something in Norrie that we didn't, you know, because he was aware that he needed to really raise his game to beat Norrie because I think of this point in, point out intensity and consistency that he brings. And and he did, and Nadal won that match in straight sets, and he then beat him again in Roland Garros, I think, in the same round, and then Norrie lost to Federer at Wimbledon in the third round. And it suddenly struck me that he's done all this, Cameron Norrie, without really having a grand slam run this season, you know, because he's run up against those players. And if there was one bad portion of the season he had, it was it was Cincinnati, Canada, US Open, where he played Carlos Alcaraz in the first round and lost there. And I think that just speaks to the way he's brought it all all year, really, you know. I think this was his sixth final of the year, was it? Um, That's staggering for Cameron Norrie. Mm. And yeah, I do think there is a Nadal-like quality, both within the match and within sort of the whole season as well.
2: And the other thing is that Norrie saw it in himself. There is a Mm. a clip that's been circulating pretty widely on social media of uh, an interview that the ATP, I think, did with him at the start of the season, sort of, looking ahead, um, talking about the tour, not just himself, but about the tour in general. And he's asked, you know, of his peers, who do you think is going to have a breakout season in 2021? And I I can't believe he manages to say this without sounding like a douchebag, but props to Cameron Norrie, he achieves this. He says himself, he says, you know, I don't want to sound like that guy, but I really think that I'm going to have a breakout season. Um, and yeah, you, you have had a breakout season, Cam Norrie. Um, yeah, it's,
3: it's even exceeding his own expectations, even better than what I think he hoped for, which I I think is particularly impressive. And I mean, look, the other thing is he, he did this, he kept his composure in this final, despite all this palaver over his shoes. I mean, he got his shoes stolen the night before. I'm so over shoe drama.
2: I'm so disappointed we're having to talk about this. Go on, just just get it over with, David. Tell the
3: listeners we'll move well, on. He didn't put them under a car. He stuck them on top of his locker. Just, uh,
2: just put them in a safe place.
3: <laughs> Why would you not put them in your locker? I don't know. Maybe it's not big enough. Who knows? Um, but actually, uh, I, I think that this was a, a real problem for him because he is on the, the 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 eve of the biggest match of his entire career and suddenly the the three pairs of shoes that he's got have all gone and he's got to put on a brand new pair and break them in and try and feel comfortable and he and he was stressed about it he said that you know he, f- he did feel anxious about it and his his coach Fekunde Lagones who, who he said he did a press conference after the final as well and and he said you know, in the past, he'd have used that as an excuse. He'd have found he'd have he'd have been more comfortable, sort of saying that was a big problem, and you know, sort of being all right with it. And this, this, he said. To be honest, I was more pissed off than he was. I was charging around the locker room looking for these things, and tr- we had everybody in the team trying to find them. And and uh, and he said, so in the end, I, we had to go out to the practice court and really push him and move him around to try to get him comfortable in these new shoes and and he said and he wasn't because if you look at him in the first couple of games he said he was falling over he was he was stumbling he wasn't ready and then there was a moment where Norrie and I think this showed his experience and how he's kind of come to terms with his place in the sport a little bit and how much he wants it he just made a conscious decision not to let it bother him anymore to just accept the hand he's been dealt and play and and that's kind of what he did he took he took it all in his stride and he took the the knockbacks of these balls flying past him and all the rest of it and just got on with it and some of those are the finals and they but they both said in the press conferences he's had some bad losses this year i mean just a week ago or two weeks ago in San Diego, he's got absolutely hammered by Kasper Ruud. It was an embarrassing final. It was. He said it was his worst match of the year. I mean, Rude played well, but that was as bad as he's played all year. We were talking the, yesterday about some of the matches we've seen him play where he's just been terrible in the last few years. In amongst a good career, you know, he's had a good career, but he'll sometimes have a, an absolute howler he bounces back. I mean, you use that Nadal-like comparison. In that way, that's what he is. He doesn't dr- dramatize these moments. He just gets on with it. Um, and then, by the way, just on, on the coach, for Lagunas, who he was a teammate of at college and who's who's only 29 years of age himself and has been his coach for five years, he said, I've got a chip on my shoulder as a coach. In that I feel like I've got to work harder than every other coach to prove myself because I don't have the experience as a coach. I don't have any any past ex- uh, sort of record and reputation. I'm not a former player of any note whatsoever. So I've got this chip on my shoulder, and and I, and what a combination they've become. They that they both play as if they've got this sort of very healthy chip on their shoulder, and uh, I, I mean, just just amazing, just brilliant. I remember
2: Greg Zetsky once in on on Prime Video talking really insightfully about how how much of an asset and a weapon it can be for a tennis player to to have a chip on their shoulder if you if you channel it in the right way it can be it can you know it can be rocket boosters
3: Greg always had a chip on his shoulder as a as a player, and I I really believe that he's I can understand that I can see where he's coming from. He he got more out of his sort of skill set because of that as well. Um, and actually, something that Norrie said about the what he likes about the British players this year is that they've all stayed out on the tour all year, grinding. And if you look at them, Dan Evans, Liam Brody, Andy Murray. You know, they just haven't stopped him and as well. They haven't gone home for creature comforts. They've just kept out there. And that's made a big difference, I think.
2: Mm. There While uh, well, well, the men's final wasn't a classic, there were some stunning matches, weren't there, in, in the lead up to that point. You had Dimitrov beating Hubert hercatch 7-6 in the third in the quarterfinals, backing up his big win over Daniil Medvedev in in the previous match there was a heck of a win from Dimitrov over her catch very very difficult emotional time for me watching watching that match um there was Taylor Fritz beating Alexander Zverev in, in probably the match of the week on the men's side I would say um, Zverev had too much points didn't he there was a crowd shushing moment in amongst the whole thing Taylor Fritz comes back and wins it in uh, in a deciding set tiebreak and the whole thing is just just lapped up by the Californian crowd it was a really really electric electric match wasn't it
3: yeah um, Fritz was really good actually to to hang in there and it was it was like the lights went out in Zverev towards the end and he he was talking afterwards about really wanting to just go home and uh, i think he's been out in america for a long time now um and fritz rates himself and showed that there's reason to rate himself in that match because he kept bringing it and uh i mean he was he was overjoyed afterwards but i can't help thinking that that's a disappointing loss in the semis that he didn't back it up and go and beat Basilashvili. Mm. he he should have in my opinion, he should have... I know Basilashvili hits the living daylights out of the thing, but he still should have beaten him.
1: Yeah, I mean, I thought he played quite well, Fritz, um, but he, he did catch Basilashvili on, a, on one of his good days. Um, my main takeaway from Fritz Verev, as, as great as Fritz was, was, well... The double faults came back and all the serving issues came back for Zverev, which we've not seen for a little while. You know, as soon as he got in that winning position and as soon as it got tight, he couldn't rely on his serve. I think he missed six first serves in a row. His second serve was either a really slow one, a really fast one or a double fault. You know, there was absolutely no reliability to it whatsoever and I think that's plagued him in the past and it hasn't recently but it's obviously still there.
2: And Fritz knew it was still there and when it when it got tight uh, on the return he played with him a little bit with his return position. He went went old sort of Sabatini and moved around and just probed probed at the at the chink in the armor and mm. and players are going to do that.
1: Yeah. No, totally. Just just one sort of big picture takeaway from, from this Indian Wells in terms of just what it says about where men's tennis is at the moment, perhaps. Um, I noticed we've had four hard-court Masters events this year and all of them haven't had Djokovic, Nadal or Federer. And the, and the winners were number 37, Hubert Hurkacz, number two, Medvedev, number five... Zverev, and number 26, Cameron Norrie in, in Indian Wells this week. So, you know, that's, that's an even split between winners you would expect and surprise winners, I suppose. And I think that's quite a good indicator of what this next phase of men's tennis is going to look like. I think the players we expect will still win the majority, probably, of the events. You know, certainly if you branch out and look at the Clay Court Masters this year, they have gone to play as we would expect. Um, and probably spread fairly evenly between those players. But I think they just are going to be more surprise winners moving forward over the next few years. Um, we've got so used to four players kind of winning everything and not leaving that much to everyone else and being so good every single week. I just don't know if it's realistic to expect that from this next group of players, as good as they are, Um Probably also notable that the ones with surprise winners were the sort of isolated events, not really leading to anything. Miami was sort of just on its own this year, and Indian Wells was post U.S. Open when it was U.S. Open time. Medvedev, Zverev stepped up and won and won the Masters event. So there's probably something to be said for that as well. But I think I think we are going to get more Cameron Norries over the next few years. Players of his caliber, the consistently good players on tour capitalizing on a week like this and and winning just something we haven't really seen in men's tennis that much over the last decade or so
0: mother's day is around the corner find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from blue nile from timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones blue nile has something she'll adore need it fast most items can ship overnight Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to Bluenile.com. That's Bluenile.com. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot, maybe your new best friend.
3: Now for a limited time, Home Chef is offering tennis podcast listeners eighteen free meals plus free dessert for life and of course free shipping on your very first box. Go to HomeChef.com slash tennis. That's Homechef.com slash tennis for eighteen free meals and free dessert for life. You heard it right. He's
2: tenth in the race. Cameron Norrie, we expect ninth place to be good enough to get into the, the field for Turin because we don't expect Rafael Nadal to play in Turin. He is uh, less than 200 points behind Hubert Hurkacz in ninth place and there's 200 points between him and Yannick Sinner in 11th place. Is he going to qualify for Turin?
3: I would have said No. And then I heard Cameron Norrie's press conference, and he was asked about the events that he's got coming up that he's going to play. And he's going to play Vienna, Paris, and Stockholm. Now, to me, I don't think those are great fits for him, personally. I I don't sort of think of Cameron Norrie as an indoor player, really. I I kind of like the idea of him having elements. I think his game is very safe in elements. It doesn't matter whether Mm -hmm. you put wind or heat or... Gritty hard courts or whatever else it is, he will he will fight through them and, and be a presence. Put the conditions down perfectly, and I kind of feel like Hubert Hercatch would would have a more precise game. That Yannick Sinner's big hitting will will hurt, and 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 Norrie's won't. But Norrie seems very unperturbed by any of it. He said, "Look, I like the courts the courts in these tournaments." He says, "I've never had a deep run." But basically, I keep losing close matches whenever I played them. So, it, if if we've learnt anything, his self belief, his self confidence, and now his game to match. Well, why why can't you do it? I mean, he's he's so close now, and um, and he's also keeps coming up with different different terms of phrases that we might have to start using, like in the hunt and in the conversation. To go within the mix, I'm not quite sure how they how they differ. Uh, but is he going to make a it? A podcast,
2: I, everyone's in the conversation. <laughs>
3: <laughs> is he going to make it? I am going to say yes. Matt, wow. Um, there's five players,
1: I think, jostling for two positions. I think you've you've got Rude, Hercatch, Nori, Sinner. Probably I'd put Ali Eliasim in there as well. Um, a lot of points still to play for, and I think I agree completely with David's analysis there of, of sort of Norrie and those conditions. I think they might suit him better than Casper Rude though. I think Casper Rude on an in a quick indoor hard court, we haven't seen that yet. I, I, I think her catch will probably get in, and yeah, I, I think Norrie might might sneak in ahead of Rude. Based, you know, if it comes down to who gets the most points out of these next few events? I, th- I think Rude and Nori I think, think,
3: think Hercatch is going to be edged. Okay.
2: Hercatch won an indoor title a couple of weeks ago.
3: Rude just, killed everybody. I, th-
1: I think Nori's going to be there, whether he's qualified or, the, or as an alternate.
2: So we all think, in summary, count, Matt. That, that. Oh, hang on. No, 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 no. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Did you just throw in alternate? Yeah. Yeah. He's going, oh, well, He's going to be. He's going to be there. It's neither here nor there. He's currently in an alternate position. That's not a prediction.
1: Thing is, you've got to remember, you can go backwards. Like there's still points to play for. He could still be overtaken by Sinner or Zulu has seen behind him. I'm saying I don't think he will be.
2: It. I'll give you it. It's a prediction. It's feeble. <laughs> <laughs> I just said. I just said he'll qualify. Okay. Cameron Norrie you is going said. to. I I I was I was in the middle of saying and then I and then I heard I heard alternate come up and I <laughs> and I backtracked for clarification. I think Cameron Norrie is going to qualify in the main draw of the ATP Finals, and that is a wild thing to be saying.
3: I yeah, think it, it is. It is. It really is. <laughs> I mean, for all <laughs> credit to him, my word, has he yeah. done it?
2: <laughs> I mean, look, frankly, even if he's only there as an alternate. That is incredible as well. Yeah, even if he's not there as an alternate,
3: <laughs> I, I never thought it's all would... incredible. Yeah. I mean, he's what he's he's joint, he's kind of fifteenth, stroke sixteenth in the world because he's on the same points as Yannick Sinner right now, um, and he's tenth for the year. So, no, I never thought he would ever do this in his whole career. So, fair play.
2: Yeah. Absolutely incredible, Cameron Norrie. And it does make it fun, doesn't it, when there's a real jostle for the last couple of spots for, yeah. for the finals? It's going to be great this next week. It does few weeks heat now. up these last few weeks, doesn't it? Um, the doubles titles in Indian Wells were won by Sue Shea and Eliza Mertens. They beat uh, Veronica Kudamatova and Elena Rab- vatkinah shane mertens uh were also wimbledon champions this year of course so it's nice to see mertens still being brilliant at doubles even though she's lost her longtime partner in arena sabalenka who doesn't want to play so much doubles anymore she she
3: really gets a lot out of doubles you know mertens i was listening Mm. to the press conference afterwards the kind of the social aspect of it. She clearly makes her life better on the tour. I mean, maybe, I don't know whether it might hurt her singles career. Some players think it does. But even if it did, even if it hurts some of those results, you can tell that her life is better for being a doubles player.
2: And for spending a lot of time with Sue Shea, I reckon.
3: Who I think was wearing a dragon mask in one of the uh, photo shoots. She, she was.
2: Not not sure there was any explanation of it and and why should there be you <laughs> wear a dragon brilliant. mask if you want to more, more of that please uh, the men's doubles titles uh, title was won by John Piers and Philip Polishek. they beat Aslan Karatsev and Andre Rublev in straight sets in that final uh, first title for Piers and check who had reached the final in San Diego the week before they'd lost to uh, Skubsky and Salisbury in that one so a great result for them um now then Matt I can't keep the listeners teased and tantalized any longer we we have to do uh, cinema corner with Catherine and Matt. <laughs> Because it's been quite a week for tennis related cinema. There were two two tennis two tennis films on offer at the uh, London Film Festival this year, which is which is brilliant. I also went to see a golf film at the London Film Festival, so excellent. More sports films, please. Um Matt and I last Sunday went to see a screening of Citizen Ash. Um, directed by Rex Miller and Sam Pollard. Rex Miller was there. He did a, a Q&A after the the uh, the screening. Um, we loved it, didn't we, Matt? We absolutely loved it. I hadn't realised um, that it was made by the same um, di- directors and production team that had made the Althea Gibson documentary that I'd watched Um as preparation for for our Althea Gibson Tennis ReLived podcast and look we went we went into this um in the privileged and I think unusual position of knowing knowing a lot about Arthur Ashe because of the research that we'd all done for our Arthur Ashe Tennis ReLived podcast there were a lot of people in in that audience who kind of every question in the q and a afterwards wasn't it was prefaced with i didn't i'm ashamed to say i didn't know very much about arthur ash um but i do now and i and i feel better for it but yeah w- we knew a lot of the content and yet still it felt extremely fresh and vital somehow
1: yes the woman to my right gasped when it was sort of revealed in the documentary that arthur ash had aids So, yes, I think from a from a content and sort of biography perspective, I actually felt quite reassured that we didn't learn anything particularly new. I think if you're if you've read up on Arthur Ashe or you've listened to our Tennis Relived show on him or you've sort of researched his life, you won't learn a great deal about the facts of his life through this film. But what you will get and certainly the gaps that were filled in for me were the amount of archive footage there was. And when I say footage, I mean both video in terms of you watch Ash play the US Open final against Tom Ocker at Forest Hills. You watch him be Davis cup captain on the bench and trying to control John McEnroe. You uh, watch him play Jimmy Connors in South Africa. There was amazing footage of all of those moments. There's also loads of photos that sort of helped to tell the story, which are, brilliant and i think the main thing is that there's so much of arthur ashe's voice in this documentary um rex miller said in in the q a afterwards that they had the transcripts of arthur ashe's interviews that he did with the writer arnold Rampersad when he was writing his days of grace autobiography they had these transcripts and rex miller said well i don't know what we can do with these they're amazing but how can we turn them into documentary and they said do you have the audio you know have have you got them anywhere and Arnold Ramper said found the audio and allowed Rex Miller and his team to digitize them and the documentary is basically told through Arthur Ashe's voice in those interviews so you hear him sort of narrate his thoughts and feelings at the key moments in his life which is incredible and I don't think You'll find that anywhere else. Um, I, I think the title Citizen Ash is is significant. It really places Ash as a citizen in the world, of the world, who's engaged in the world, and it sort of charts his his development from sort of reluctant to get involved in the civil rights movement to doing it in his own way. That That is all told brilliantly. Um, and then there's lots of really significant people who are in it. Donald Dell is in it. John McEnroe is in it. And... Perhaps most significant of all, Jeannie, Arthur's wife. There's there's a lot of of her in it as well. She she knows Rex Miller, I believe, through photography. So you hear lots from her, and and that's brilliant as well. And yeah, it's it's very well done. Qu- quite emotional at times. Some some really sad moments in it. Um, but yeah, well worth a watch.
2: Mm, his brother Johnny um, mm. is also in yes. it. He's a He's a big contributor and somebody somebody I hadn't heard from before. There was there was a moment where Johnny Johnny told the story of of he, he was serving in Vietnam during during the Vietnam War and uh, a, a law was introduced during the Vietnam War as a response a direct response to to the Second World War when when mothers families lost all of their all of their sons that only one one child in a, in a family could. Be in active, active duty at one time in the war, um, and Johnny, I think Arthur was about nineteen at the time. I think it was when he was, when he was at Stanford University. Johnny signed up for an additional a back-to-back tour, um, so that Arthur wouldn't have to serve in the Vietnam War. And I don't know whether Matt could see in that moment, but I that I just was streaming with tears. I that. I I was triggered (laughs) Um, and yeah, there were little moments like that, that, that just, yeah, really got me Um, and yeah, highly recommend watching it. They didn't, they weren't quite sure if the, I mean, this is quite often the case with film, film festival films, but they weren't quite sure what the distribution would be. So I can't tell you, I mean, one of the questions in the Q&A was (laughs) where will this, be available i want to tell people to to go and see this where can they go and see it and i think they thought there would be a limited cinema release in the uk i presume it'll end up on a streaming platform somewhere um i'll try and keep an eye on that so i can tip people off about where they can watch it when it does when it does become available i also went to see king richard um at the royal festival hall um the screening of that uh, on Friday as part of the London Film Festival. This is um, a biopic of Richard Williams, um, father, of course, of, of Serena and Venus. And one of the greatest tennis coaches of all time. Somebody that has had a massive impact on the entire course of tennis history. Um, Richard Williams is played by Will Smith. And I'd heard rumblings of sort of this is an Oscar winning performance by, by Will Smith in the lead up. And I'd seen the trailer and I have to say the trailer worried me. I, I thought it looked really overwrought and in, in particular Will Smith's performance looked overwrought in the trailer. Um, but I was so pleasantly surprised by the film. Um, it's not overwrought. I think it's, it's actually a perfectly balanced performance. It's brilliant. Um, and, uh, yeah, it focuses on quite a narrow period, um, which I, I was, I, I was quite surprised by. I thought it would be a sweeping epic sort of covering, you know, the Williams story from the, the very, you know, the, the twinkle in Richard Williams' eye when he, when he says to Oracine, we need to have two more daughters right up until, you know, Serena williams winning her twenty third grand slam it doesn't it focuses on quite a narrow period when when Serena and Venus are both, are both teenagers um it does have the um not just cooperation but backing of Serena and Venus williams they were listed as as producers um and it's really really interesting i'm not I'm not saying that it's a definitive unbiased telling of the of the Richard Williams story but it is a rich telling of the Richard Williams story and I do think Will Smith's performance is is pretty brilliant really and those are words that I didn't think I'd ever be saying on the tennis podcast so there they are.
3: <laughs> well I mean I, I hadn't heard your reviews of either one of those um, films and I, I'm really excited to see both of them now thank you
2: you're welcome. I can't I can't tell you when Cinema Corner will return to the tennis podcast, um, but as and when it's required or warranted, don't you worry, we will keep you abreast of all uh, cinematic-related developments in the tennis world. Um, the tennis podcast overall will be back next Monday. Uh, we're going to have a Q&A special, one of our one of our Q&A specials that we do every now and then next Monday. So if you want to submit a question for that, you can do so via our social media channels. Um, no Thursday show this week, but of course we'll be keeping an eye on what's going on in the tennis world. We've got the ATP and the WTA Tour are both in Moscow this week for the Kremlin Cup. Uh, Emma Raducanu uh, has has pulled out of that tournament that she she had been scheduled to play. Um, there in fact is is uh, some reports, including by Simon Briggs, that she is currently sort of trialling an arrangement with Estevan Carril, the coach that formerly worked with Johanna Conte. So we'll keep an eye on that situation. The men's tour is also... In Moscow, there's no Medvedev there, but Rublev, Khachanov and Karatsev are all playing. So we'll keep an eye on all of that. Don't worry. Uh, and we'll bring you any pertinent updates at the start of next week's show before we get our teeth into the q and I think that's it. No points for any of us for Zeus, Scousel, Mousel or Rogue. Some of us were closer than others. No details required. Billy Jean is sponsored by Billy Jean King. Chris Albert-Lee is our executive producer and top bloke and save the best to last here because our mascot for the week is Quattro. Excellent name for an excellent dog. Quattro is a two-year-old corgi mix, uh, a rescue dog living in Basel, Switzerland. Uh, His humans are Alexandra and Alfredo. Uh, There is just the, the... two most sumptuous pictures of quattro one of him frolicking in the swiss mountains just looking resplendent and another of him in a sort of sea of tennis balls one one in his mouth uh one either either side of his his front paw just guarding them possessively so hello lovely lovely quattro if you want to see quattro content and i'm telling you you do uh it's it's gonna be in our newsletter, so sign up to that if you haven't already. We'll be back with another tennis podcast next Monday. Matt David, thank you. We'll speak to you
0: then. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans.